Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 12. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Thank you very much, Matthew. And um, if you could have your Bibles open, and we'll have as we look through uh, this passage together. <clears throat> well, we're coming to, this is the final sermon in a mini-series of four that we've been having, looking at uh, um, human relationships. So we've looked at singleness, we've looked at same-sex attraction, we looked at marriage last week, and today we're looking at the painful reality of divorce, of marital breakdown. And it's with a heaviness that we look at these issues because we recognize there's much joy and love and light when we come to our human relationships and the gift that God has given us in those. And yet there's also pain. There's sin. But we want to take God's word seriously. We want to see what he says about how he's ordered relationships so that we can flourish, even when that might be in times of darkness and brokenness and pain. And if there's one area in which uh, uh, Augustine, the uh, church father uh, from the 4th century, said in one of his prayers in the Confessions, his book that he uh, wrote about his own journey to Christ, and he says that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in the Lord. If there's one area of restlessness that we can see so clearly, it's in our relationships, isn't it? Uh, several years ago, the Guardian newspaper ran, and when I mean several, I think I read this when I was doing marriage prep with some couples in sort of uh, early 2000. Um, it was in a marriage prep book that I was looking at that it was quoted in, an article from the Guardian newspaper stating that some lucky souls keep an intimate marriage relationship going for 20 years or more. 
but the natural time limit is closer to four years, the same as the World Cup. Once you've lost it, the writer put, nothing on earth will bring back that magic spark. You either feel it or you don't, and that's the end of the matter. The article concluded with this consolation. It can always be rekindled for somebody new. So surely unhappily married people just need to cut their losses, just need to move on. Isn't that the compassionate response? It's interesting that that article written written decades ago still sounds absolutely on point in terms of our society and culture. Uh, looking at a law firm that we're giving advice on divorce proceedings and how to move forward, one of the things they clearly stated, which was helpful to read, was just the pastoral pain. This wasn't a Christian law firm or anything like this, but it, it had on its uh, website the reality, the pain of divorce, the emotional, the physical, the sociological, the impact on family and children. Economically, they reckon divorce in the UK costs around £43 billion. Pounds in terms of uh, legal fees and lost work days and sickness, not to mention the emotional uh, distress and pain. And you see, the Bible does acknowledge this breakdown, this pain. Jesus spoke into a culture that had lost sight of the heart of God's word when it comes to marriages breaking down. And, and Jesus brings us back to see both the transforming power of God's love, but also his redeeming love for hurt people. So the first thing that I want us to look at, as you can see on the uh, slide here, this first point, God's good design, verses 4 to 6. A bit of context. In chapter 19, Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. He's finished his ministry in Galilee, and now his eyes and heart are set on the climax of his mission, his death on a cross and his resurrection, bringing the forgiveness he's talked about in chapter 18. The forgiveness and mercy he expects his disciples to live by. That can only be realized through his death and resurrection. He's been healing the crowd. We're told that in verse 2. There are people coming forward with sickness and illness and finding wholeness in Christ. And it's jarring, isn't it, to hear this pious religious group of leaders, these Pharisees who took God's word very, very seriously, coming to test him about biblical law. They're setting a trap. They're using the Old Testament law about divorce to entangle Jesus. They're not interested in learning. They just want to get Jesus into big trouble. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every good reason? The Pharisees were dragging Jesus into a a hot debate of their day. It's centered on Deuteronomy 24. That was the storm center. And in verse 1, we read there... um, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, and so it carries on into a sort of specific case study of then she marries someone else and then gets divorced. Can she go back to the original one? It's case law in terms of how Israel to live faithfully within the promised land. Now, the controversy was about how to view that original phrase, some indecency. It's there in verse 7 of chapter 19. The conservatives, headed by Rabbi Shammai, taught that God required divorce for sexual unfaithfulness. The liberals, headed up by Rabbi Hillel, 
um, focused on anything or something indecent, teaching that divorce could happen for anything the husband deemed indecent. It could be something as minor as burning the cooking. Rabbi Akaba taught that a husband could divorce his wife even if he found someone else prettier than she. That was the spiritual and social temperature of that time. It's not so different today. As the American Jewish sociologist Lenore Weizmann, describing the US legal system, said this, the new no-fault divorce rules shifted the criteria for viable marriages from faithfulness to individual standards of personal satisfaction. From faithfulness to personal satisfaction. They redefine marriage as a time-limited, contingent arrangement rather than a lifelong commitment. It's very insightful, isn't it? We haven't really changed over the centuries. So if Jesus sides with the conservatives, as they think he will, if you go back to the Sermon on the Mount and what he's talked about looking lustfully at a woman, and that's committing adultery in the heart, so if he sides with the conservatives, then perhaps Herod will go after him, like he did with John the Baptist, and that would be a way of getting him off the scene. Another beheading, please. But Jesus is not flustered. Uh, I was listening to, um, as I usually do when I wake up, uh, Radio 4 and the Today programme, and on Thursday there was a journalist interviewing one of the MPs who's assisting with the, the war effort in Ukraine, and there's been a conference that's been taking place around plans for support and what rebuilding Ukraine looks like and, uh, and these future things. And the MP was very articulate, was really on it, made some very good points. And then the journalist, towards the end of the interview, went, and can I ask you about interest rates? wasn't his area and he was being hammered over interest rates and inflation this poor guy was on the ropes he was floundering to get his answers the journalist wouldn't even let him go for the weather update he was prepared to make that late but Jesus just isn't flustered in the same way here he isn't trying to win a media ratings battle his answer is beautiful because it goes deep into God's word it takes them back to God's good plan in Genesis 2 and it's there in Genesis 2, as Jesus quotes from verses 4 onwards, 4 to 6, that we're given a glimpse of that first marriage between Adam and Eve. It's a new beginning, full of hope and pleasure. Two genders, male and female, living in the garden, in God's presence, man and woman, utterly complementing each other in God's work. It's in marriage that man and woman become one flesh, enjoying sex to becoming one, expressing and creating a God-honoring unity. And that's why marriage preparation for couples who are engaged, thinking about marriage, but even before they get engaged, this sort of preparation is important. We all have expectations, you see. One of the key things that Emily and I were blessed by as we did our marriage prep was having to fill in an expectations worksheet, sheet, which I still use with people today, 62 questions covering a whole range of different things to go away and think about on your own and then come together and talk about and go, oh, <laughs> we think a bit differently about all this stuff. Because, because that helps us as couples see and work through, that it's no longer you and me, but us. 
It's not bartering or negotiating on transactional views of marriage. We're a new family. We have a shared identity that's knit together by God as wife and husband. And this oneness has a deeper, profound unity. Uh, Whether we recognize it or not, as Jesus says, God brings people together and presides over their marital union. Did you hear those words? What God has joined together, let no one separate. What God has joined together, let no one separate. This is the high point of the marriage service when, as a, a minister, I get to say those words over a couple and to the congregation. It's a wonderful privilege. When Jesus is asked about cutting marriages, in verses 4 to 6, his immediate response is to reinforce the permanence, the lifelong quality of marriage, because that's God's design. That's God's intention. And uh, again, I would urge you to listen to Jez's sermon from last week, where he helpfully unpacked God's aims for marriage from Ephesians 5 of its faithful love, of its fruitfulness, of its growth and maturity. And yet we live in a Genesis 3 world. Our sin has corrupted creation. Our relationships with each other are broken and broken with God. Nothing is left untarnished. And as Jez put it last week in his sermon, in marriage, our flaws and failures are exposed. And if you don't see the flaws, you're not in the game. So let's look at the pain of divorce in verses 7 to 9. If God's plan was lifelong marriage, one flesh, and all that stuff, why does Moses then let us divorce? Here, the Pharisees are pushing Jesus into the trap of defying Moses. If Jesus' view isn't the same as Moses, then he must be a false prophet. We've got him that way. And in verse 8, Jesus provides two corrections. Have a look at that verse. See where his emphasis is. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not always this way from the beginning. First correction. Moses never commanded divorce. It was allowed, it was permitted because of the painful pastoral situation a wife or husband could be in. As as N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, illustrates this difference like this. Uh, just as a car is made to drive safely on a road, it's not meant to skid around and collide into other cars, so marriage was made to be a partnership of one woman and one man for life. Not something that could be split up and reassembled whenever one person wanted it. Moses didn't say, as it were, when you drive your car, this is how to have an accident. Rather, when you drive your car, take care not to have an accident. But if tragically an accident occurs, this is how to deal with it. It's not go wreck your car and just get a new one. No, in the light of the emotional, the economic, the family devastation of broken marriage, there must be a way of helping limit that damage. There must be a way of protecting the injured party, of providing a clear status for the divorced woman in Deuteronomy 24, to prevent her from being treated as a tradable commodity. 
That's what's going on. It's, this provision is about protection. The second correction is that Moses made provision for divorce because of hard-heartedness. In his patience, God gives these regulations to bear with human sinfulness. You see, marriage is not the problem. Hard-hearted people are the problem. We are. We're the problem, not Jesus. Not God's ideal design. You take away the hard-heartedness and you can scrap the divorce laws. You can close the divorce courts. You, you can spend money on wedding anniversary celebrations, not divorce settlements. And then there's Jesus' bold, authority-filled command in verse 9. I tell you. Isn't it fascinating? He's been quoting Old Testament scripture and he puts his words on the same level here as God's. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. You see, firstly, Jesus does not dilute his words. To divorce your spouse for whatever reason you like and marry someone else is to engage in adultery. In the Lord's sight, it is a sin. It is wrong. In Jesus' time, many rabbis were looking for freedom and breath to do what they want. Does that sound familiar in our contemporary church? Whereas Jesus is limiting and building tight parameters to guard the health of marriage. Divorce is a sad reality. It is not an easy escape route. And yet, within the boundaries, Jesus has compassion. In the situation where a spouse has been sexually immoral, a divorce can be pursued. And for the innocent spouse, remarriage may be possible. But that, does that mean if, if a husband has an affair or commits another grave sin, that it should be necessarily leading to divorce straight away? Well, certainly not. The lesson of Matthew 18 for Jesus' followers is to show forgiveness. 70 times 7. Times 77. It, this is forgiveness. This is the mercy of God's kingdom. To see repentance to see reconciliation and rebuilding. You know, the choice to pursue legitimate divorce is painful, it's costly, it's spiritually hard work. And the choice to show forgiveness, to work towards a renewed marriage, is also costly and painful and spiritually hard work. They're both choices that can be used by God. He will work in all circumstances to bring his ultimate good plan. But this means having a contrite, repentant heart. It means listening to God's word and not just choosing the bits we want to hear. If we're the injured spouse, it means not looking for vengeance. If we're the spouse who is sinned against, or who sinned, sorry, if we're the spouse who sinned, it means not justifying our actions in self-pity, 
both husband and wife, need to ask the Holy Spirit to change them. Now, there's a truckload of questions about the times and circumstances when divorce is permissible by Christians. These have been debated since the time of the early church fathers in the second and third century. It's debated here in the New Testament. Why is adultery the exception? Can other forms of sexual immorality be included? Well, perhaps adultery, most clearly and publicly, uh, tears apart the one flesh that Jesus highlights in verse 5. The adultery had effectively put to death the union, and the divorce publicly announces legally what has happened physically and spiritually. Other sexually deviant practices would be included in this. Pedophilia, prostitution. Perhaps, as some theologians have talked about, even persistent habitual pornographic use. Now, I think those are grey areas, particularly over some of those sexual sins that are more solo. But this needs wisdom and thought. It needs obedience and a heart towards the glory of God. Is adultery the only exception? A few decades later, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7.15 discusses the possibility of divorce and the freedom to remarry in the case of willful desertion within a mixed marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. So if an unbeliever no longer wants to stay with their Christian spouse, abandoning them in one sense, then this action again effectively says the marriage is dead. And the At that point, Paul talks about the the spouse being free, loosed. And people debate, is that free to then remarry or just free to um, not be bound by that covenant? What about physical, verbal, and emotional abuse? A wife being beaten by a husband or a husband being emotionally, psychologically bullied by his wife? So no marriage with any form of abuse present can be considered viable, can it? It's plain from Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 21 and 22, that the sixth commandment covers all forms of violence, of hatred, of aggression. And it's interesting in Malachi, an Old Testament verse that has caused a lot of uh, pain when it comes to divorce because of that clear statement in one translation The Lord says, I hate divorce. But in the context, actually, this is very good news as we look at this. So in this statement, we have God's opposition not only to divorce, but to family violence. And it's interesting, there are two ways of uh, uh, translating this verse. And in the NIV footnote, we read, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, because... The man who divorces his wife covers his garment with violence. Now, the reference to covering with a garment can be a term to describe sexual intimacy. So the verse could be a reference in marriage to domestic violence followed by sex, or the both going on in the same place. There's both physical violent abuse and sexual intimacy. And their violence breaks the marriage covenant. What adds to the horror in Malachi 2 is that this, there is this religious cover-up taking place. A few verses earlier, in verses 13 to 14, these men have been at the temple weeping and wailing and bringing their sacrifices to the Lord and praying, oh, please answer us and you're holy and here we're doing all this stuff. 
but you're not listening to us. And the Lord will not accept them. Why? Because their lives are hypocrisy, evil. He sees their marital unfaithfulness. He sees the evil way they're treating their wives. These husbands are playing at worshipping the Lord whilst divorcing their wives to marry women from the nations around them. Just like a simple upgrade. That is violence. The sin is what the Lord hates. And therefore the Lord defends the abused. What must a victimized spouse do in these circumstances? Clearly seek protection. Leave the abuser. If the guilty spouse's behavior does not change, if there's no repentance, if there's no admission of guilt and wrong, if there's no reconciliation that can come from that repentance, if there is, then restoration is futile. Can I say, if you need support or you know someone in this situation, don't struggle alone. Don't ignore it. God sees this, and we're called to act. And I will put this up here. The, the, the phone number for the 24-hour um, national helpline on domestic abuse. And the website below, uh, restored-uk.org, is a Christian charity that works particularly in the field of domestic abuse and violence. I'm acutely aware that the breakdown of marriage isn't just theoretical. It isn't sociological or economic in its entirety. It's about real families with real hurt, feeling as if everything is lost. Homes, hopes, confidence, contact with the children, friends and family. Many people going through divorce feel like a failure. There's the public nature of the breakdown that can carry so much shame. There's a desire not to be defined by the relational trauma. The pastoral issues for Christians going through divorce or recovering from it are many, aren't they? Does God love me? What does it mean to be obedient to Christ? Can I receive forgiveness if I have willfully broken a marriage? Can I forgive the spouse who has left me? Will I ever feel healed for the hurt I carry? What impact will this have on the children? Is there any way God can be glorified in my situation now? And for the Christian community, how do we faithfully minister Jesus' grace and truth to Christians and non-Christians who are living with broken marriages, who are going through divorce, who are finding life after separation and divorce? How do we live faithfully to the Bible's teaching whilst applying compassion and grace? If remarriage after divorce is not possible, will God really provide for me? Is he really enough? So therefore, is our church a place where people carrying the pain of divorce can experience Christ's redeeming love? Where they can be part of and feel loved in a new creation family? a new covenant family that is Christ. You see, we prayerfully need wisdom to walk together and support one another. Remarriage after divorce is not an automatic right. For the Christian, it isn't. It will be painful and costly. God knows the consequences of adultery because this is the amazing thing. He experiences it. 
He himself is joined to his people, and his people have been adulterous. Take a look at the book of Hosea, or James 4. We are adulterous. He is betrayed. And as a result, our God has a soft spot in his heart for victims of adultery. He comforts and gives more grace than we could imagine. So many people, though they can go through moments of seemingly unbearable pain, receive power to love and be reunited from the God who stays committed to adulterers and cares for those they betray, who binds up the brokenhearted. And that's quite simply where I just want to finish. Is just look at the protector. It's fascinating that from verse 9 onwards, the Pharisees disappear. Their traps have been sprung and they're empty. The disciples now are the ones left scratching their heads, realizing marriage isn't disposable. It isn't something to walk away from when we feel like it. And maybe there, as a bunch of lads going, uh, maybe we're better off single. Well, Jesus picks up their thread. He wants them to think carefully about this word, he says. Well, what word? What, about marriage and divorce, Jesus? Or about the permanence of marriage? Or, or is it better not to be married? But within that context, then, of singleness, as he brings out with the eunuchs that he's talking about and being willing to be single and celibate for the gospel in verse 12b, Jesus makes a much bigger point that we can't lose. A much bigger point. In verses 12b, that the kingdom of heaven is so important that all our human relationships must find their priority, their importance, their value in service of his kingdom, for the sake of the kingdom. It's fascinating that the conversation about marriage and divorce and singleness in verses 4 to 12 is preceded by that teaching on forgiveness and mercy. It's immediately followed by an encounter where children are being brought to Jesus and welcomed into his kingdom. He says, the kingdom of heaven belongs to these. It's then followed by a rich man eagerly wanting eternal life, but leaving the encounter with Jesus sad because he can't give up his wealth. And the disciples, again, are scratching their heads yet again. Who then can be saved? This is the whole climax of all of this. Chapter 19, 25. Who can be saved? Verse 26. With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. You see, in Christ Jesus, when we come to him wholeheartedly, with our baggage, with our brokenness, with our sin, seeking him to save us, to help us eternally, he will listen. He will save. He is the answer to the psalm we've been reading, Psalm 34, verse 5. Those who look at him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. That applies to all those who've been hurt and broken by divorce, to those who willfully walked away if they repent and turn and come to look at the Lord. Verse 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those crushed in spirit. How? Because on the cross, Christ, the faithful, sacrificial husband, willingly took our shame on himself. He was crushed for our sin so that our hearts could be cleansed and forgiven. Jesus is the husband who laid down his life for his unfaithful wife, the church, to make her his treasure. And his resurrection means 
we will celebrate the perfect marriage of Christ with his people in his kingdom. Whether single, same-sex attracted, happily married, unhappily married, going through divorce, recovering from it. For all who look to him as Lord and Savior, who know their salvation rests on him, who are prepared to come to be cleansed of their sin, to live their lives for the sake of his kingdom. That's where true freedom and rest and refuge is. Ultimately, that is where we taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray that that becomes reality for us here at Grace Church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who redeems and restores, who sees the brokenness of our lives, and that, Father, you don't turn a blind eye. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you tackled these questions straight on and you gave hope. You did not compromise with your truth. And, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would console and comfort and strengthen all of us today, whether we're affected by this issue directly or indirectly or not at all. Father, open our hearts and minds to be a church that's ready to show compassion, to stand by your word, and to follow Jesus for the sake of his kingdom, to give our lives in worship of you. Amen.